Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. My guest for this program is Mike Brown who is the co-author of a really helpful book titled Sacred Bond, Covenant Theology Explored. Mike also happens to be a missionary pastor of a church in Milan, Italy. And Mike Brown, thanks for joining me for this episode. Happy to be here, Shane. So on this program, I'd like to provide our listeners with some basic tools to help them get a better understanding of the Bible. How do we properly exegete a given passage of Scripture? And then how do we move from there to properly teaching and applying what we've read? Now, before we speak positively about how we study the Bible, I think we should first talk about some of the popular approaches that are out there that we should try to avoid. Uh, What are some that come to your mind, Mike? Definitely, there is the approach of looking to the Bible for what interests me. So often, we tend to look at the Bible or we approach the Bible as a kind of how-to manual spiritually. So, you know, I've got a question, you know, about how to raise kids. Um, maybe I may have a question on how to improve my marriage or I have a question on, you know, how can I just have more patience? And we just go hunting around for Stress verses. Relief. Yeah, whatever the case may be. And, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about those things. But we need to remember, I think, from the, the get-go that the Bible is not a how-to manual. It's not a manual of any sort. It's not, what was the acronym, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, B-I-B-L-E. <laughs> now, that's that the one. book for me. But it's God's special revelation to us that is written on the stage of redemptive history over thousands of years through over 40 authors, given to us in 66 different books, different genres, but all together giving one basic theme that God is redeems the people for himself through Jesus Christ. If we don't start there with what the Bible is about, we're, we've already embarked on the wrong course. So it'd be kind of like going through Harry Potter looking for stress relief. <laughs> that's a, that's there's a, good. There's right. a bigger plot right. and, yeah. and narrative that you need to follow. Right. Uh, Voldemort bad. Uh, Harry good. Right, right, uh, right. Harry wins. Right. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right, right. Any, any story. That, that's actually a great analogy because 
Okay. In, in our culture, we tend to see people have um, refrigerator magnets with verses on them. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's fine. If, you know, it's good to memorize particular passages of the Bible. But, you know, Shane, a lot of Christians don't even know that chapter divisions and verse divisions aren't in the original text. Right. That's something that I think was around the 16th century yeah. that was inserted. That's a very helpful tool and apparatus to help us remember where to find things. But we need to keep in mind that the Bible was the way it was written. It was designed for us to read from beginning to end. Think of like the epistles, for example. It's a letter. It's written to a particular church or individual with the beginning and end, main body, a point that the author wants to make. When I've preached through epistles in the past as a pastor, I've tried to encourage the congregation, you know, this week, if you can, try to read through it. You know, not, In one not sitting. Us. Yeah, in one sitting because, yeah. for example, if you're, if you're preaching through Philippians, it's only four chapters. Yeah. It takes about 10, 15 minutes to read through, but at least gives you that sort of context. I think we have to start there because, as you said, you're not going to go to a novel. You're not going to go to Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or something or whatever it is and just pick out your favorite page here or there. You read it from beginning to end because it does tell a story. Well, the Bible is doing the same thing. I, I really think it's important that we begin there that this is the big context, the redemptive historical context, as we would say, before we delve into the particular passage that we're trying to study. So we often come to the Bible with the wrong questions. If If we're seeking, how do I fix my marriage? Although the Bible might address this issue of marriage, it will do it in a different way than you think, because it's not a self-help manual. There's a larger story that you're going to be caught up with here in this story of redemptive history. That's precisely right. I think God provides the questions that we should be asking. Sometimes we're not asking the right ones. That's why I'm a big proponent of reading the Bible from beginning to end. Uh, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, try to do even that. Leviticus, even Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus is surprisingly really good when you know that it's about Christ yeah. ultimately, or that it's fulfilled in Christ. Then it becomes very interesting. And yeah, there are look, there are particular passages and chapters in the Bible that aren't going to be as interesting. You know, when you're reading it as a family, and it's uh, if you're doing Bible reading every night or whatever, and you come to a genealogy or you come to instructions on how to build the tabernacle, not exactly the most interesting thing, you know. Or Joshua and how the land was divided up, or Nehemiah, you know, this guy put this many bricks in the wall and that kind yeah. of thing. But the story as a whole all fits together. And it's important that we do read through Genesis through Revelation systematically, I think, so that we get a full understanding and, and a bigger view of what God is saying to us. Our problem is we're so often looking for the wrong thing, or we want God to say what we want him to tell us, when in fact, what we need to do is sit, be quiet and listen to what he has already said from beginning to end. I think that's the starting point. Now, there's another related view that we need to talk about, and that's uh, the sort of approach which says, you know, what this text means to me is, you know, where you are basically creating out of thin air the interpretive method that you choose for yourself. Right. It's easy to take a text that was directed toward the nation of Israel. Yeah. At a particular time, dealing with Israel's failure, for example, in the Mosaic Covenant. So a classic example of this, I mean, there's so many, but one that we often see in the United States, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Uh, I remember shortly after 9-11, seeing that verse with an American flag everywhere, as Mm. if God were saying, my people are the United States, and 
yeah, you've had this awful terrorist attack and maybe there's these things happening that you don't agree with politically, culturally in the United States. But if everybody gets together and prays, then I'll hear and I'll heal your land. I'll make things better for you. Yeah. When in fact, that text has nothing to do with the United States. It has nothing to do with any nation other yeah. than Israel. Yeah, God's saying my people. <laughs> right. And how, do, and how do you learn that? You you know what? You learn that from reading the story from beginning to end. Right. If you read the story from beginning to end, then you know, oh, there was this nation, Israel, that God chose and brought them out, gave them the law, uh, showed them miracles, brought them out of slavery, brought them into the promised land, but had a covenant with them if they obeyed. They would be blessed as a nation. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed. That's the context for understanding those texts later in the prophets that are really sent to the nation as covenant attorneys prosecuting Israel according to the Sinai covenant because of their disobedience. If we don't understand that story, if we just kind of hop in or pull things out wherever we want, you're going to end up with a different religion. Yeah. Again, it's why we need to know the story as a whole and understand the context of each book and, and each passage. And, you know, that's not that difficult to do. I think if you have a decent study Bible, you get something like the the ESV study Bible, the big one, or, uh, you know, the Reformation study Bible, just something that has a collection of trusted scholars that do some of the spade work for you. But the most important thing is to read through the text over and over again, because otherwise it's easy to end up with an approach where I'm looking for some experience to validate the verse I read this morning. Yeah. I read a verse and it's sort of like a fortune cookie. It's most important to hear the Bible proclaimed and preached faithfully and properly in a, in a sound The analogy church. that I give there is like, if you're going to try to understand Shakespeare, reading it for yourself, especially if you're not familiar with the time in which Shakespeare wrote it, right? reading it for yourself, it's going to be confusing. There's oh, a lot yeah. of confusing right. language. Yeah. And then you could say, well, I'm going to get with a study group of other students who are reading Shakespeare. That may be more right. helpful. But if you have a scholar in the mix, somebody who's spent his lifetime studying the words of Shakespeare in his original historical context, in other words, a professor – now you're onto something. Now you, your study group is informed by outside opinions and that's outside right. perspectives. That's that's a great analogy. Um, I think of Dante. Dante, I think, is even harder to read than Shakespeare. And if I want to learn Dante, if I want to really understand the Divine Comedy, I need to go hear a lecture on the Divine Comedy or read mm -hmm. a lecture of something of a scholar, somebody who really understands what Divine Comedy is all about, the original context, what it was that Dante was trying to communicate, his particular medieval world, everything that's going on in Florence at that time. This guy knows that and is able to explain that to me in layman's language. Yeah, then you have those other layers, you yeah. know, maybe meeting it with other friends who are interested in this and, and then reading it on my own. But simply just picking up and reading it on my own is helpful, but there's going to be a lot that I don't understand. Yes. What we don't want to do is pick up Divine Comedy by Dante or Shakespeare's sonnets and just read a line and say, what does this mean to me? Right. Kind of a narcissist approach or, you know, the experience-based approach. Well, I had this experience and this is what this means without even understanding anything of what the original author is trying to, to convey. Exactly. Another thing we could say is that something to avoid is the application-centered approach. If you're always coming to the Bible looking for something to do, like what is my life lesson here today? What nugget can I take for me to apply today? then we're always going to be stuck with imperatives, aren't we? Right. And explain exactly what right. that word means. First well, okay, yeah, so imperative indicative, where we're really talking about law gospel, you know, so important. There, there's a few tools that I think you can give to every Christian. One is we've already talked about, read the Bible in context. Every text, 
has a context and we need to know that context. More and more, we're learning that right in our own culture from yeah. just tweets going out. And a lot of times people don't know what the context is. Another one is what we're talking about here, the imperative indicative. A lot of Protestant reformers talked about how there were two parts of scripture, the law and the gospel. The law essentially is an imperative, a command, what God wants you to do in its essence you know, God says, do this and you shall live. And we're wired for that, right? We're wired for yeah. that from the beginning. I mean, God gave, wrote law on man's heart from before the fall in creation. We are designed to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourself. That, that's the point of life is to bring God glory through these things that he loves, this, this righteousness. But indicative is this is true. Imperative says, do this. Indicative says, this is done. And the gospel is an indicative. Christ has fulfilled for you that which you cannot do for yourself. The last Adam has done that which the first Adam failed to do. So we need to keep that in mind. Now, there's also what we understand the law coming to us as people who are in Christ. So Paul, for example, typically in his letters, He's going to lay out a lot of indicative at the beginning. We think of Romans, you know, he first 11 he, chapters. Yeah. He gives you all this, uh, this uh, prescription of our sinful condition in, you know, chapters one through three up to about verse 20. And then he goes into this indicative, this beautiful explanation of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ from chapter three, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 11. Then you get to therefore, yeah, the therefore chapter 12 through 16 and more of its law, however, we're not under its condemnation. Rather, this is do this because you live. Yeah. Do this because you're in Christ and it glorifies the Lord. But if we're Therefore, only looking in view for of that, God's mercies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Therefore, because of what Christ has done for you. But if we're only looking for, well, what's the thing that I must do? We're ultimately separating the imperative from the indicative which is the good news and why yeah. we want to go out and do things in the first place. Yeah. So. so in other words, if we're only focused on practical application, then we're going to naturally gravitate only to those imperative sections where Paul is giving us instructions. But he even says the rationale to be interested in the imperatives. Here's what you do in view of Christ's mercies. If we don't understand the mercy in the first place, it will just sort of be. I'm going to do good works. This is what Christians do. And what a good boy am I? Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I guess, you know, a good maybe litmus test is to ask yourself, what's your favorite chapter in the book mm. of Romans? You know, is it chapter four uh, where it teaches you that you're, you're justified solely by Christ through faith alone? Or is it going to be chapter 12? What do you tend to gravitate more toward? Chapter 12, is it's all beautiful. It's all wonderful. But I guess my point in saying that is if we feel like, well, this is all sort of kind of abstract and maybe a little boring and just not really moving me until I get to chapter 12 and I find the things that God's telling me to do, then we've really put the cart before the horse in a sense, because what's happened there is that we've just gravitated toward that law, toward that thing that we're to do without recognizing the beauty and the importance of what Christ has done for us. This is why we need to hear the gospel all the time. I think it was Jerry Bridges that said, uh, the law tells me where to run, but the gospel is what gives me the feet. Mm. And without that, we have nothing. Yeah, That's the power. The last approach uh, I want to talk about here in terms of things to avoid is the traditionalist approach. You know, the person who says, well, I was always raised to believe that. And I guess the question that I want to come back with when I hear that is, why do you think your tradition 
got it right as opposed to all the other traditions that are out there? Shouldn't there be a way to evaluate whether tradition A is better than tradition B or C or D? Right. Um, Boy, that's good. Because at the end of the day, a lot of us hang out in the tradition we were raised in Mm -hmm. because it's comfortable to us. Right. Yeah, that's important. I mean, I think of C.S. Lewis talks about the body of Christ is sort of like a house full of rooms. Yeah. And each room is a different tradition. And so there's, you know, the Lutheran room, the Anglican room, the the Baptist room. Lutheran room has the best beer. I think the Anglican room is probably the best aesthetically. Don't go there for the food, though. Yeah, don't go there for the food. It's English. <laughs> nah, none of them are perfect. They've all got pros and cons. But here's where I'm going with all that. There's the necessity of us meeting in the hallway, so to speak. Right. And and if we're not doing that, if we're not sort of evaluating, and this is why confessions are so important, if we're able to compare respective confessions, it gets us to think and to have some self-awareness right? and to really do some evaluation of our own tradition and our own interpretive methods, right? you know? I mean, really, don't we do that even with Christianity? We try to teach our kids saying that I'm a Christian simply because I grew up Christian right. is not a good answer. No. You know, I think we can also apply that to our approach of scripture. Well, why do you read the Bible the way you do? Right. So you should know what you believe and why you believe it, but you should also know what your neighbor believes and why your neighbor believes it. You should know what motivates the Pentecostals and why they see certain texts in certain ways, because you're going to bump into them and your kids are too. So if your kids have never interacted with the Pentecostal or liberal perspective on the text that you hold dear, they're going to be influenced by this novel way of seeing the text. Absolutely. And, you know, we can apply that same thing to so many aspects of Christianity. You know, think of liturgies, for example. Maybe you visit a different kind of church, Mm -hmm. an Anglican church or a non-denominational church or whatever. Why do they do things the way they do? Just as we need to ask, what do we believe and why do we believe it? What do we do in worship and why? Yeah. We need the respective traditions and to bump up against those, not because we're all right in some sort of postmodern way, but I think it strengthens, it should strengthen your convictions of why you are in a particular tradition and why you have a particular approach to scripture. And especially important, as you said, Shane, with our kids, you know, I love it. I've loved it over the years when, you know, my kids would come up to me and say, hey, dad, my friend at school is a Baptist and um, they do things this way at church. Why? And, you know, I try to say, well, here's why we do things this way in this particular tradition or or liturgy Uh, without exploring other traditions how are they ever going to be strengthened in that yeah. way? You know, yeah. they're just parroting what their parents have said. Yeah. I mean, think about this for your typical youth group. How interesting it might be to bring in someone from another tradition to say, here's how we, from the Pentecostal tradition, interpret these texts. I mean, that'll get your youth group talking. Yeah, or right. someone from a liberal background, you know, someone from a Roman Catholic background. Yeah. And now your youth group is not just thinking about how we have interpreted the text, but now you have to deal with this other person who's standing right there in front of you. Yeah. What you are know? the claims? Yeah. And that would be, a, I think, a healthy approach. Again, it's only going to strengthen, it should, your own convictions of why. Because there are, there's so many Christians who are just in a tradition simply because that's where they landed. Yeah, that's right. where that's where their parents that's were. That's how it was raised. And they don't know anything else. Right. So now that we've kind of talked about some of the things to avoid, we're moving away from the subjective, me-centered, experience-centered, application-centered approach to more of an objective focus on what God's Word said in history and how He said it in its original context. And and recovering that objective sense is super important in our time. Well, absolutely. Again, if we're not in contact at all with, say, a pastor who is a trained expert, not that he knows everything and, and he's a source of infallibility, 
but rather but a specialist. He's a specialist. He's a trained specialist. He better be your pastor. Better be trained in the original languages. He better have a serious credential for being able to interpret sacred text. I mean, we have we we expect our our attorneys to be credentialed yeah. and to be trained on how to interpret the law. We certainly expect uh, doctors to be credentialed and trained on how to interpret sicknesses and and deal with the body mm-hmm. and, and be experts in that sense. Well, why wouldn't we expect the same for those who tend to our soul and are interpreting the most important text that we could ever possess as human beings, the, the sacred word of God. So there has to be some knowledge of the Greek, the Hebrew. There has to be an understanding of how the Bible fits together as a whole, as well as its history. I mean, well, a great example of this is the phrase, Iron Curtain. You know, that phrase by itself, the two words don't communicate anything about the USSR. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine 400 years down the road, people running into this phrase, interpreting it in weird ways. Right. Well, that's there are all kinds of phrases like that in the Bible that had a particular meaning in its historical context. And so in addition to understanding the original language, as you're preparing to teach the Bible, you should be in consultation with people who understand that historical context. Right. No, I agree with you. I think the, so if we're talking about the average Christian, um, let's say Plumber Joe, yeah. you know, with his, his family, loves the Lord, goes to church on Sunday, wants to be a faithful husband and Father, what do I do, Pastor? Certainly read the Bible. And now when you come to a passage and you don't know what it means, and maybe some one of the kids say, but dad, did God really make the sun stand still? Yeah. What does this passage mean? And you don't know, especially when you get to things like the prophets or the book of Revelation, there's a lot of mystery in there. Yes. When you get to those things, it's okay. You don't have to know everything. You know, you're not a trained specialist. That's okay. But you can go to your pastor and ask him. And maybe he can also help you and put you into consultation with other specialists. Yeah. Because your pastor, again, isn't the end all be all in as a source of interpretation. But hopefully he has been trained by other specialists who just as we have specialists for the body, if you have a problem with your eye, uh, you don't go to a nose doctor. You know, if you have uh, a you know a problem with your ear, you don't go to a podiatrist. Uh, yeah, a podiatrist, <laughs> right? Exactly. So the, 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 it's the same with regard to all the disciplines for interpreting the scriptures. Hopefully, the minister has not only been trained by all of these specialists, uh, but has also passed exams, right. has proven himself. And is continuing to grow and learn, but he is serving that to you, and he is there and available to you as well. Helping to explain it to you. Helping to explain it to you, and he will also help provide you with tools so that you don't have to have that kind of pressure on you to be an expert. You don't have to be. Right. I love the analogy there of the the doctor who himself is not a specialist but relies on specialists. I mean, if you think about a lot of people as they're reading the Bible – it sort of reminds me of those who read their own symptoms mm-hmm. and give a self-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm reading my own body and it's telling me something strange here because I'm feeling I have a certain set of symptoms. Right. Then they maybe Google some of their symptoms and it's either diabetes or I have um, pancreatic cancer or, you know, right. you, you know, and I've done this. I don't know if you've done this before, but you go to the doctor and they kind of laugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. like, Dr. Yeah. Google 
is uh, right, right. not as helpful as a lot of people think. <laughs> well, the worst is the chat rooms. You know, when you get right. in, it's just the blind leading the blind. But that's the same thing as a lot of our Bible studies. Oh, people, yeah. You have people who aren't trained in right. either the text in its original language, in its historical context. That's right. And so they bring a lot of misunderstanding in the same way that people bring misunderstanding in terms of their own symptoms. And so the doctor who is trained in the text of the human body can give insight outside of your own experience. And now they can also do it wrong. That's why we also have heretics in the Christian world as well. But if you're at least relying on someone who is trained, there's a huge advantage. And that may be your minister or it may be somebody whose book you're reading. You know, if you do this, you can erase almost 80 or 90% of the interpretations that are out there. That's that's precisely right. That's precisely right. There's so much subjectivity out there that reigns. Absolutely. And then, you know, thinking about that, it, it helps us, especially if your pastor, hopefully your minister is part of something larger than just his church, but rather is part of an ecclesiastical assembly. He's yeah. been tested by an ecclesiastical body and he's held accountable by ecclesiastical body. There are certain boundaries. So your minister hopefully is accountable to those things. If he is not, then he has no guardrails. He can just sort of drive all over the road and who's holding him accountable. Which is the problem with uh, churches that are led by charismatic leaders. Yeah, that's right. Let's transition now to a discussion about the interpretive method that we find in scripture itself. Scripture interprets scripture. So if you look at the New Testament, it's the fulfillment of the things promised in the Old Testament. You know, and Jesus says things like in John 5, you seek the scriptures, he told the religious leaders, thinking that in them you have eternal life. But these are the texts that speak of mm-hmm. me. That's right. So if if you use that as an overarching interpretive method that this Bible is really centered on Jesus, then that's going to safeguard you, isn't it? Oh, in so many ways. But just as in the Harry Potter novels, we don't necessarily see Harry in every scene, but he's the major anchor. Mm-hmm that the entire plot revolves around. Yeah, he's the protagonist. He's, yeah. he's the main guy. I like to think of that as sort of like the, if you ever look at Rembrandt, so many of his works, the middle part of his painting is almost illuminated by the dark background. Yeah. And so in many ways, there's parts of the scripture that are dark because it's illuminating Christ, right. ultimately. It's not that he's just this thread found here and there as if you're on an Easter egg hunt going through the Old Testament, but rather you're looking at the Bible as a whole, like one one giant painting. It's Jesus Christ, yeah. the person and work that all of these things testify. And Jesus himself says those things. Yeah. He quoted John 5, you know, Luke 24, he begins with Moses and the prophets and interprets to them all the things that are pointing to him. Yeah, it's a great sermon that I wish was recorded for us. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have been on that road. And in some ways it is. It's there in the book of Acts. The apostles are preaching right. with this new method that they were given by Jesus himself. Yeah, and hopefully if you have a pastor who's faithful in proclaiming Christ and not himself or not therapy or not self-help and all the other host of things that can be preached these days, he's proclaiming to you just that, the main storyline. So when you get to things like David and Goliath, it's These not are the five just, smooth stones that I can use yeah, to crush the Goliath yeah, in so my many, life, right? right? There's so many <laughs> versions of, uh, you know, we, we defeat the Goliaths in your life. Again, you know? but that's the therapeutic approach, yep. the application approach. Yep. Yeah, I, you know, I'm preaching through Genesis right now. And last week I preached on uh, Genesis 3.15 and uh, told the congregation in Milan, 
when we're thinking of how we interpret the Bible, how we study the Bible, in many ways, we need to start with Genesis 3.15. Yeah, he will crush your head. That's right. And he will strike your heel. Everything ultimately flows out of this because it starts there with God's promise that he's going to send a champion. And, and when he separates the seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent, and then we see that played out throughout redemptive history through the entire Bible. Well, when you get to places like Goliath, this isn't just like a little scarlet thread thing. You're yeah. seeing the promise that God makes at the beginning of a champion who's going to crush the head of the serpent. A champion from Bethlehem. Yeah, played out again. So all of a sudden, right, This here's this little shepherd boy, unassuming, out of Bethlehem. You remember the story. If David wins, if Israel, you bring forth your best, and if you beat our best, then we'll be your slaves and vice versa. And then what happens? David defeats Goliath, and he even cuts off his head. Yeah. Sometimes I think as the story develops, you should read it in a way that almost as if you don't know the ending already. Hmm. You know, like you're reading the David story. You should ask the question that they were asking in his day. Right. Like, maybe he's the guy. Right. Maybe he's the one to crush the serpent's head. Maybe this is the fulfillment of things. If you take that to what happens later when he falls with this episode of Bathsheba, then you say... He's not the guy. He's not the guy. He's not the guy. And we yeah. history is still waiting for the fulfillment of the promise mm -hmm. that we need a better king. That's right. And that's why all these other kings, you said, you know, then another king arose who did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Mm -hmm. This is the dark space. Right. That's right. <laughs> that is anticipating the light to come. That's right. There are no heroes, really. I mean, pick your favorite. Um, you know, Jacob, <laughs> Abraham, David. I mean, David's the man after God's own heart. Yeah. And he's a murderer, a, a, an adulterer. Uh, he abuses authority. It all points to Jesus Christ as the living word, as really the whole point and the, the meaning of Christianity. So if you begin to follow the contours of the things that Jesus says, along with the things that the apostles say in the New Testament, you begin to see that the entire Bible really is about Jesus himself. That's right. Yeah. And really, when when you understand that, then you get things like the gospel, like the gospel of Luke and all of the Old Testament references. Yeah. Or the book of Hebrews, for example. You know, you read through that, just that first chapter, and it's loaded. It's just a litany of Old Testament references all pointing to how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised champion, the prophet, the priest, the king. He's greater than all the angels. He's the one that we've looked for. And now he's brought in a better covenant than the old covenant. The Passover lamb that takes us into the ultimate exodus. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That is really the way to read the Bible. Always go back and ask yourself, how does the New Testament interpret the old? So, you know, Shane, I mean, just if we thought of a few tools just to remind your average person, it's like to boil it down, I would say, remember every text, keep it in context, allow scripture to interpret scripture. So when you come to a passage and it's tough, how does the rest of the Bible interpret this? Particularly, how does the New Testament interpret the old? I think it was mm -hmm. as Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Well, there is some truth to that. And then remember the law gospel distinction as you're going through the Bible. You know, it's okay to ask yourself, okay, is this is this law here in this passage or yeah. is this gospel? Is this a promise 
that God is proclaiming, or is this a command that he is giving yeah. me to do? Because there's always a huge difference. So these are some of the, the most particular tools that, that anybody, any average literate person can apply to the Bible. Now, Mike, you also, in your book that you co-wrote with Zach Keel, you introduce your readers to the variety of covenants that appear throughout the scriptures and the difference between them. Why is it important to be able to understand and to distinguish the different covenants that are mentioned throughout the Bible? Yeah, first of all, because we see that word appear so many times in scripture. And I would say every time you find that word, in the Bible, ask yourself which covenant, because there are different covenants. But essentially, covenant is the tool that God designed to communicate to us His relationship with His people. And covenant, as we know, you know, is a is a bond that has oaths and promises. And typically, with covenants, there will be some kind of threat if you don't fulfill the conditions of that covenant. But great blessing if you do. So definitely God creates a, has a covenant with Adam. And we know that from reading the rest of the Bible, even though the word covenant doesn't appear in the first three chapters, uh, we know it's there, just like the word sin doesn't appear in the first three chapters. But we also know that that was there in the fall. Uh, what we find that God has this covenant with Adam. If you do these things, Adam, if you fulfill the purpose that I've given you, if you protect the garden, if you don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you eventually will have the right to eternal life symbolized in the tree of life. There's a covenant arrangement, which the devil knows and what he tries to ultimately derail. Uh, and because he knows that God being faithful will stay to that covenant. Out of that then comes a new covenant after that's broken and there's the curse and Adam and all of his posterity receive death spiritually, physically, and eternally, which are the curses of the covenant comes then a covenant of grace. Again, Genesis 3.15, God promising that he's going to do something to bring us to the tree of life, which is then played out on a much greater scale with Abraham when he tells him, I'm going to give you people and a land. And then we see that playing out through redemptive history. Then and again, get, if you know anything about that story, he's not presented as a righteous man right. who does anything to earn this. It's just all grace given in spite of many examples of his great sin. That's right. That's why we would say it's a covenant of promise or yeah. a covenant of grace right. because Abraham is the recipient. And again, you know, we see that not only with God walking between the animal halves, which was something Genesis that- Genesis 15. Yeah, in Genesis 15, that great covenantal treaty that was common in the ancient world where you would have two kings perhaps that would come together to make a, a covenant, a bond. Uh, typically, the lesser of the two would have some sort of blood ritual maybe walking between animal halves or standing before a strangled animal and calling down curses on himself if he does not fulfill those conditions. It's reversed in Genesis 15 in the sense that God walks through the animal halves. In other words, saying, I'm going to give these things to you. While Abraham's asleep. While Abraham's asleep. And then you find with his sons, Isaac, and especially Jacob, God reiterating that great covenant of yeah. grace, always saying, I will do, I will, I will, I will. When you get to 400 years later, Israel coming out of Egypt, God bringing them out as he promised to do, bringing them to Mount Sinai. Now it's reversed. Instead of God taking the oath, now you have Israel taking the oath and right. saying, all of this we will do, the law. If we don't understand- and, then, and at the beginning of that new covenant arrangement, he says, this is not going to be like the promise that I made with the fathers. That's right. That's exactly right. And he refers to that over and In over again. In other words, it's a change of covenants. And that's the point that I, I wanted to make is that if we don't understand the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the- Mosaic covenant, you know, the Abrahamic being of grace and promise and the Mosaic covenant being of law, 
with threats. You know, you go to Leviticus 26 or you go to Deuteronomy 28 and boy, is this whole chapter. Yeah. Yeah. If you as a nation are obedient, you're going to get blessing. Your women are going to be fertile. There's going to be peace in the land and your vats are going to be full. There'll There'll be prosperity. But if you are disobedient, there's going to be pestilence and famine and war and eventually you're going to be carried away. If you don't, it's like a like a renter's agreement. You know, if you play your music too loud right. at three o'clock in the morning, you're going to be, you know, evicted, be evicted from the apartment. Yeah. And boy, they play loud music. <laughs> and, I mean, doesn't God even says it in one text is like, you know, you are tenants in my land. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, the point of saying all this stuff is that it's important for us as anybody interpreting the Bible, whether we're a pastor or a Bible study leader or just an average Christian to know the difference between these two covenants, Abraham and Moses, because if, if we don't know the difference between those two Boy, you're not going to make a lot of sense out of even like the Psalms that'll often reference covenants. Which covenant is it talking about? And I like to think of, you know, there's certain chapters in the Bible that are sort of more important than maybe other chapters. They're all important. But if you don't get Genesis 15, what's going on there? What's God promising? Yeah. It's like maybe watching a movie that- and missing you, the really important yeah, scene. Yeah, you didn't yeah. see the first half hour. Yeah. And now you're that annoying person asking- Why is he doing yeah, this? Yeah, what's going yeah. on? What's going yeah. on? And so we, we need to- You were to, getting popcorn. Right, right, right. <laughs> we, need, we need to know what the, these things are all about so that- And again, you don't have to be- an Your pastor should be an expert. Yeah. But at least understanding the difference between those two- so that as you're reading the rest of the Old Testament, it's like, oh, now I see. Okay, that's what Second Chronicles 7.14 is talking right. about. They were disobedient, and if they'll repent according to the Abrahamic covenant, they, that's that door is always open. You know, they come back through that. There's going to be grace. But if they don't repent, well, there's still this other thing that's been imposed upon you, you know, and that's also the beauty of the new covenant when Jesus comes is that he says a new covenant I bring, not new in relation to everything in the past, because ultimately it's the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled, but new in relation to the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant. As Paul says, the Abrahamic covenant was never annulled. The Mosaic covenant was given as training wheels. That's right. Or to use the word that Paul uses, it's a tutor that was meant to lead us to Christ. That's right. Because we can't fulfill the terms of God's righteous standards on our own. That's right. Yeah. Galatians chapters three and four really provide us with the interpretation, the the understanding. Again, we get back to New Testament interpreting the old. Right. But that is really the helpful lens for understanding uh, how these two covenants operated and how Christ is the fulfillment. So that you are not under a covenant of law if you're in Christ. You are not under a covenant of works. What does this mean for you as an average believer in your assurance? The relationship that you have with God is mediated through Jesus Christ. Your mediator is not Moses, but the Lord Jesus, who fulfilled the law in your place. I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill all righteousness. Part of what it means to read a passage in context is to ask that question, which covenant is it in? Is this one of the promises that we find in the time of Abraham? Or is this one of the imperative commands we find in the Mosaic period? Or is this one of the words of the prophets, which is assuming the Mosaic covenant still? Or is it one of the words of the prophets anticipating the new covenant that Christ will fulfill. Right. And, you know, as we're asking these questions, which are so good, I mean, they all come up as you're going through the scriptures. Now we can see how the Bible is really interesting. It's fascinating. It's It's the greatest story ever told. And as you come on Sunday to receive God's means of grace, the proclamation of God's word 
really should be about what Jesus Christ has fulfilled, but from Genesis to Revelation, we can always see where that's the case. A faithful pastor, a faithful preacher is going to preach Christ from ultimately every book of the Bible, because all of those questions that we're asking, again, lead, they're part of the great picture that's painted of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what other books would you recommend that sort of help to get the big picture of the Bible? For the average person, average well, person. one thing I would definitely say is very useful, again, is a study Bible, a trusted study Bible, something like the ESV. ESV study Bible is great. Yeah, the, the, so is the Reformation study Reformation Bible. Reformation study Bible has a list of scholars. I would not recommend a study Bible with only one scholar. Mm. You're getting one man's picture. Something that's nice about the ESV or the Reformation study Bible is if you look at the opening. A team the, of good the, scholars. It's a team yeah. of scholars and experts. So you're getting a guy who's not just maybe a New Testament scholar on one particular book, but he's actually maybe done a dissertation yeah. on that particular right. book. So that would be one big thing I would I would recommend. Then there's all kinds of other helpful books if you want to just have a big picture of the Bible or see how Christ comes out in the whole of Scripture. I think a really great book, Simple, Small, is by Ed Clowney, uh, The Unfolding Mystery. There's a lot of helpful resources out there. To Graham Goldsworthy's books are fantastic as well. Wonderful. Goldsworthy is fan. Anything you can get by Goldsworthy is gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is, right. is definitely worth it. But then maybe if you're working through a particular book, maybe as a Bible study leader, you know, good commentary is helpful. And I would stay away from Matthew Henry. Yeah. Matthew Henry has definitely been a popular commentator. I think I would caution listeners away from Matthew Henry. He's wonderful in some respects, but not very tight with the text. Yeah. It's more like these ideological themes that he mm-hmm. connects, but his ideas are not necessarily grounded in the approach we've been arguing here today. That, right. You know, the text and the language and the original context. Yeah. Another thing, too, we want to think about is someone like Spurgeon, for example, very, very popular. Spurgeon is great on things like sin and grace and really gets the gospel. But typically what you're going to find, and this was kind of a common thing in in Spurgeon's day and with some of the Puritans, is one verse and then a whole sermon. Yeah. And that sometimes is distilled down to devotional material from that verse. Yeah. So often you end up with basically it's just a springboard to what Spurgeon really wants to say. Yeah. But if you're trying to understand the Bible as a whole, he is definitely not the guy I would go to. Yeah. We would call that approach maybe atomistic. You're looking more at the notches on the trees or the individual leaf rather than the big picture, the forest. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of what we're saying is you got to know the forest in order to make sense of the individual path that you're on. That's right. Yeah. 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 It would almost be like if we go back to the Rembrandt analogy, if you went and took a teeny little piece of that painting and ran away from it and gave a lecture just on that whole painting, but it ended up talking about all sorts of different things. That's kind of what that approach does. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. For those in our audience who who don't necessarily have any, you know, seminary training, any kind of experience with the original languages, you know, some of those computer tools are really helpful. There's Logos, there's Accordance. Those are very, very helpful tools. There's tons of helpful tools out there. You can also get the, I think the ESV is free for your phone. And the wonderful thing I like about that is if you're looking up a verse, you're looking up a passage, uh, or you're reading, maybe sometimes I'll do that if I'm on the train or whatever, it'll have cross-references that you can simply click on just from your phone and get all sorts of the ability of Scripture interpreting Scripture right. simply through your cell phone. So plenty of resources out there for understanding the Bible better and using the proper methods.
folks, if you'd like to investigate this topic further, you can find all kinds of book and article recommendations in the show notes. And we're also making available a downloadable PDF document that I've written titled Finding Christ in All the Scriptures. We'll make this resource available to you for a gift of any size. And if you've already donated something this year or you're already a paid subscriber via Substack, you'll automatically receive a link to download this new resource, likely before the end of this week. We now have an option to accept donations from those outside the U.S. And for more information about this or other giving options, including making a tax-deductible donation, simply look for the Donate tab at HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Thank you.